0: Tonight on The Good Times Show, Cleo Abram is building some of the most amazing content on the internet.
1: But what is her origin story?
0: We'll unpack her amazing journey as a creator at walks, building shows, podcasts and more.
1: We deep dive into her bold decision to become an independent creator and we reverse engineer her creative process.
0: Plus, you'll also hear some amazing takes on what it takes to be a creator on TikTok, YouTube, and more.
1: And she tells us why she's feeling optimistic about technology and the future.
0: Welcome to The Good Time Show. Let's get into it. I'm your host, Arati. I'm Sriram. And this is a Good Time Show, and we host optimistic conversations with builders and creators Whether it's a field of technology or sports or entertainment or music, it doesn't matter. And we've had so much fun doing this. You should subscribe at the button below so that you can get the content that we do and put out every week. And we have some incredible guests. Today is no exception. We have an awesome guest. And it'll be big if true.
1: (laughs) Welcome back. You know, we have a very special guest for you today. The one, the only, Cleo Abram. Cleo, welcome to the show. You know, I was going to say, I have this huge intro prepared, you know, talking about your million-plus TikTok followers, the content, but maybe let me ask you, how would you describe who you are and what you do?
2: I'm a video producer, and I make things that appear on TikTok sometimes and on YouTube sometimes and on Netflix sometimes. But the through line in all of it is... I try and make video work that helps people better understand the world. And I've done that by working at Vox. I was there for five years, worked on the Netflix show Explained and the YouTube original show Glad You Asked and just a bunch of the wonderful, wonderful explainer work that Vox did. And I recently left to start my own show, which is called Huge If True, which you can find on TikTok and on YouTube. And the premise of that show is to take that kind of explainer video model that I've done for years and try and find technologies or big ideas that I think could really make the world better and explain how they work and how people think about them and who's working on them to try and kind of be the line that I have in my head is to be like black mirror, but the opposite and journalism, Mm -hmm. like visions of the world in the future that don't suck. And how we could get there.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. That's <laughs> um, uh you're preaching to the choir. I just want to say really, amazing introduction. And I just want to say Artie and I is a huge plans of clear. If you look at our text WhatsApp threads, there are probably <laughs> hundreds of messages where we send each other, you know, your videos or TikTok or on YouTube for multiple reasons. First of all, because they're so freaking awesome and well done. They're amazing pieces of visual storytelling. At recent f F11, the artificial room, the ones on dogs and life, right? There's so many examples, we want to get into all of them. But I think even more so, the reason why we do this show, and, and the reason why we have been doing this for quite a while is we're optimistic about technology. And we believe in people who are trying to build stuff. And you and the work you do is such a breath of fresh air in a world full of doom and gloom and, you know, dystopian desert-filled future scapes that, hey, maybe it won't all suck and maybe we won't all die a fiery death with zombies or something. So I just want to say huge amounts of what you do.
0: Yeah, I think for us, the technology gave us everything. You know, we moved from India 16 years ago or so and our first jobs were in tech and we've kind of stayed in that. And this is all we know. If tech as a field, as an industry goes away tomorrow, I think we're basically, we have no skills that are like marketable or monetizable. So we'd basically be out of the streets. So for us, it's like, Part of it is like we owe a lot to this industry and to who we've become and part of it is like this is our way of paying it forward because I think it's there's so much magic in in building things and creating things and I also think it's okay to be an optimist I don't know when that just went out of fashion so we you know that's why your content and what you do really resonates with us because at heart's we are optimists we are techno optimists and when we look at your content explainers. And I send it to folks I know, I send it to all my friends who are not in tech. And it's great because for them, you know, it's, it's a great way to like bridge the gap and have this common conversation. And so I find it really inspiring.
1: Yeah. Great. Okay. We're going to put you on the spot because we're going to take you all of your content and we're going to give you some of these videos and your story. But I'm going to put you on the spot, right? Imagine if this very video was one of your explainers. How would you set this up? How would you structure it? How would you make it work?
2: So I promise I'm going to answer that. But first, I just want to say the admiration is very mutual. I remember the very first conversation that Sriram and I had, we talked about this feeling of optimism, sort of in spite of it all, I don't know how to say that. But like, in spite of the the general feeling that it's it sometimes very reasonably feels challenging to look ahead. There's a lot that we as a society face. And also this feeling that like, we've just done such incredible things over the course of the last just hundred years. How can we make the next hundred even more, reduce even more suffering for people around the world, improve people's lives and just continue to, to, solve problems in the way that we have, not maybe year over year, but decade over decade, right? And so I just, I remember hearing that from you, Sriram, and I think together, both of you also have this wonderful skill of like lifting other people up using technology. Like if you look at your social media feeds and also just on this show, you're constantly boosting up other people that are doing similar work. And I just, I love that. I think that's wonderful. So thank you for having me. And the admiration is very mutual. As for the way that I would start this show. So I, the thing that I really try and do with every video is figure out why it's a video. Like it's fairly high cost to do this thing that we're doing. Like, especially if you are adding sort of a production layer, if you are, you know, filming with a, a camera, if you're taking the time to write a script and edit it and maybe uh, animate in After Effects, like all of those are barriers to creating a story and they need to have reasons to be there in the first place. And the, the reason for video, in my opinion, is that you need both senses, Like when I write a video script, there's a column that says ears and a column that says eyes and a column that says source. And Mm -hmm. every row corresponds to every other row. So ears there. Here's what you're hearing. Here's what you're seeing at the same time. And here's what the source of that information is. And so my outlines for how I think about a video are not like. I want to tell this story. That's how I would write an essay instead for a video. And I don't write essays. I like no one would hire me to write a long form piece. Like that's not, I've never done that in my life, except in college, I guess. But the way that I write an outline for a video is actually dropping in the visuals in order. Like yeah. there's no other text on the page. It's just like visual chart. Mm-hmm. Data, image of chart, visual, like diagram. And then maybe there's a terrible diagram that I've like drawn in like Google Slides or something. And so if you look through the visuals, you should understand the story without me telling you anything else. And so I would start with a visual maybe. I would say like, here's, I don't know, now now it's just going to seem like too boosting of my work but i'd be like maybe like I love it. One... I
1: hype yourself yeah. go for it or
2: like here's here's an example of something whatever you guys want to talk about it's like here's a clip of a moment in a video that talked about x and you can like see the choice that she made here and that's you know related to a larger trend of people doing y mm-hmm. and so we want to talk about z like that's the sort of what's the visual is the question that I So would what
0: add. what's it gonna look like for for Cleo Abram coming on our show? How would you start that video?
2: Well actually you guys you guys have kind of done this already. You will have shown <laughs> a clip of you'll you'll yeah you yep. showed actually let me say it in the past <laughs> you showed a clip from my show. And it's like, okay, so here's the visual of what the trailer looks like. And here's the line that you needed to see in order to understand what she's doing. And now we're going to have a conversation about that mm. like after we already had some evidence
1: yeah and i'm gonna have some tagline like you know how this should be the future of technology journalism or something like that so that's be a big
2: claim i don't know if i would make that claim you can make it for me if you want but hey, it's
0: YouTube, right? I, and it's our show we can do whatever we you want you can do whatever you want yeah. <laughs> i would
2: say i think i would frame it as i'm one flavor in your journalism menu
1: mm. i like <laughs> it i'm not mirrored, but opposite that's a catchy line, that's gonna go a long distance, yeah. I think. You know, maybe, you know, I'll, we're gonna spend a lot more time talking about your videos because they are just so amazing. But maybe let's get back into your story, right? So where did you grow up? How do you get into video? At one time I think you want to get into foreign services. Like tell us your story.
2: So I grew up in Washington, DC. And I at the time it was like the mid-90s and early two thousands when I was living in DC as a kid. I was surrounded by a lot of people who worked in politics a lot of like doctors and lawyers who lived in dc i had kind of a very inspired view of of all of these incredible people who these are my friends parents but a pretty narrow slice of the total number of options for what you might do with your life and i never once considered becoming a video producer like truly or even a journalist it never crossed my mind and so i Graduated from high school, went to college. I moved to New York to go to Columbia and really loved studying science and studying political science. And so I took a lot of like poli-sci seminars and also a bunch of pre-med courses thinking that I would do that and deciding against it. And after college, I still thought that I was gonna go work in politics somehow. I thought maybe that I would go work in the foreign service. I had spent a lot of time studying global politics, I thought that I would use that, mm-hmm. that knowledge somewhere. And the truth was that when I found myself out in the world thinking about the actual day-to-day of the jobs that I had sort of considered on a piece of paper, the the actual skills that different jobs use, I think... I think college kids, or I'll just speak for myself, don't necessarily think about the skill level of the job or the day-to-day experience of the job as much as they do about the overall like goal or concept. So I was very interested in global politics. I thought that I wanted to go into the foreign service. That's not actually a good match for me. A good match for me is is journalism. I had just never considered it. A good match for me is like thinking about these topics in a way that helps explain them to others, because the skill that I really love is trying to Synthesize complicated information and then share it in a way that makes it digestible to other people who are busy and thinking about other things, so that they can participate in the conversation. Did you
0: always know that that was a superpower for you? Like, when did you realize that that's what I like doing?
2: I wish I'd realized it earlier. Honestly, like, I I think I really messed up my class choice in college. Like, if I could go back, I would have studied. I took one creative writing class senior year because I like gifted it to myself. Like, Oh, I'm allowed to take a creative class like this. Yeah. I should have been taking those classes the whole way through. Like I should have, if I had followed my actual interests, like what, what made me feel like I wanted to stay in the library all night and like go down a rabbit hole, I would have discovered this earlier, but I didn't, I didn't actually know that this is the skill that I loved. And so I, Left college. I went into political consulting briefly. And then I went after I figured out that I wanted to work more in media. I didn't have a journalism background. I never I never went to journalism school. And so I got a job at Vox because I loved Vox. They did this. They were only about two or three years old at the time, maybe, but I was reading them. And they did this incredible Explainer journalism that I I didn't really see other people doing, and so I really wanted to go work at Vox. Didn't have an experience in any experience in journalism, but I persuaded them to hire me on the business side on like developing new projects. And so the idea was I was a junior person that helped sell our first show to Netflix for example, but also a lot of other stuff. We launched a daily podcast which is called Today Explained and we launched it in partnership with Stitcher, which is a podcast platform that helped to help pay for the the launch of that show. A bunch of other things like that. Like how do we launch new projects at Vox but in ways that make make sure the business grows? Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this I can do like I Again, I didn't really have that kind of like creative confidence yet. I didn't really know (laughs) that someone would actually pay me for my creativity. Like, I I don't don't know why, looking back, I I never thought of that. But I just that was something that someone someone else got to do. I didn't get to do that. And so I was working at Vox, and I had helped write the the pitch deck that became what we sold to Netflix, and it was this. When we sold that show, it was this just incredible happy moment where we had sold Box's first ever show to a streaming platform? Like we were so excited, and I was so excited for like five minutes, mm-hmm. and then I was so sad because I realized that my job was done, and I didn't right. get to I didn't get to go make the show because I wasn't a video producer.
1: But, you know, the wet moment in time. You know, because I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the Diamonds episode, which I think you know it's kind of in some ways your journey into this. But, that was a more interesting moment in time for media because I remember there was Wax, Buzzfeed, why you know, quote-unquote, what was called new media at the time. And there's kind of this big hope of, hey, new formats, new voices, new kinds of journalism pushing back against, quote-unquote, the old guard. Yeah. What do you think that era, the experience that explain, what do you think made that explainer format new and interesting? Because for me, that's kind of how I of course, experienced Wax, which yeah. was that. What do you think worked about that format?
2: So when Vox launched, and again, I wasn't there for the launch, but I sort of became extremely familiar with Vox's history and story because it was my job to kind of like sell Vox to others. So when Vox launched, there there were a bunch of specific product approaches. They had an idea of card stacks where you could go learn more about a topic in an evergreen way. And there was a specific build out for that actual kind of content. And that was a good idea. But really, what resonated about Vox was the underlying philosophy that that was uh, not just in this specific approach to actually how to write it down, but everything they did was about helping you understand the underlying context behind a topic that you might be interested in so that the next time you see a headline, you'll better understand all of the many things that experts understand when they read mm-hmm. that headline or that that might help you participate in that conversation. I remember the sort of analogy that they used early on. I, f- I forget where I heard this originally, but the idea that Vox was the underside of the iceberg of news, that Vox I mean, didn't do breaking news, although Vox does sometimes now, but that it was the the bottom of the iceberg of journalism that it was everything else that you don't see necessarily in the breaking news headline, but would right. w- was the full picture. And that was just so exciting to me. I love that so, so much. And I think it's why Vox worked so well, is that it was not, it didn't just like the fact that card stacks didn't really become super popular wasn't really the point. It was that they had a philosophy about what kind of service they were providing an yeah. audience and the audience was the audience was like I was among the audience early on like I just loved it so so much
1: yeah so this is a, the reason I bring this up because I remember this era really fondly and I think Arty and I you know we're all in sort of various technology company roles I would say this is probably say 2014-2015 but beyond that say, and I think I'm probably going to say 2016 onwards you know if you're going kind of listen to our show or maybe our tweets or maybe some of the people we spend a lot of time with there is this very strong feeling that journalism, especially around technology, has taken, let's say, a way more pessimistic direction. And there's a lot of reasons for it. You know, I would, to kind of steel man the other side, I would say, you know, tech growing, you know, just very visible role in global affairs, you know, potential issues that you could probably attribute to technology is a bunch of reasons. But I would say there has been a kind of a wipe shift in multiple directions. One, in just journalism, like, for example, I can't remember the last time. I saw a positive piece about a new product launch in a mainstream piece of news. I've it about the last time I saw a sci-fi movie, which was hopeful about the future, as opposed to, well, this is the different kind of way humanity dies and then tries to survive in the, you know, the desert skips. Somewhere. I'm a
2: so, I'm a Star Trek fan. You're really speaking yeah. my language. Oh, yeah, yeah I, it's, I, it's hard I, to the I, new Star Trek, by the way, amazing.
1: Yes, yes, Uh, Strange New Worlds is great. I think one of the things about Strange New Worlds is it kind of hits that nostalgia spot where every week, you know, there is kind of, you go off on, you know, you beam down to a new planet and the captain beams down despite the best advice everyone else and you have an adventure. But it does hit that nostalgia spot because if you kind of look back on Star Trek or TNG, that is was the future is going to be better as opposed to if you look at any one of those sci-fi pieces, you know, I, I think of like Bad Max or India. It's usually a like, hey, global warming has destroyed us, you know, a nuclear holocaust has destroyed us or whatever. And, you know, I would say so. That is why this shift towards pessimism, you know, in sci-fi, in media, why do you think that happened?
2: So I have a very pointed approach to my show. I say... I am deliberately optimistic. Come to my show if you want to see visions of the future that might be positive and participate in that. But I don't have any antagonism toward the journalism that made me want to also launch that show, right? So it's it's just that I agree with you that I was that like there was a lot of one flavor and i wanted to offer a different flavor but i get why i get why many journalists i won't say all have the posture that they have toward especially larger technology companies and it gets at a lot of the really interesting questions about journalism that that have been happening over the last 5 or 10 years even where if you are if you are covering like early silicon valley where there is a kind of approach to disruption. Like now that word we 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 Mm -hmm. categorize it as corny, but it it didn't use it. Make the world a better place. Right. Like make the world a better place when when you're when you're not punching up, when technology companies that you're covering are small and Mm -hmm. are not, you know, in charge of the communications of the vast majority of human beings on earth or the plurality of human beings on earth as a communications platform like Facebook is. The posture that you naturally have towards covering those things does need to be different. Like covering early Facebook and covering Facebook now is requires different things of journalists. And yeah. that makes total sense. In the yeah. same way, frankly, that we had a larger conversation about journalism and how journalism covered politics when mm-hmm. politicians, and, and during the time period, this hasn't stopped, when specific kinds of politicians were attacking freedom of the press specifically. Like mm-hmm. there, when, when you're talking about different kinds of topics you naturally take different approaches and that makes total sense. And so I think when I looked at my media diet a couple of years ago when I started to have this like inkling that I wanted to start a show of my own, it wasn't that I didn't like the journalism that I was reading. Like I subscribe to long-form investigative pieces that hold technology companies current abuses of power to account and and I I financially support and want to read that kind of journalism. The thing that I was trying to offer was where do I, I was wondering as a consumer, like where do I go when what I want to understand is how I can help make the world better. And like, what do I offer that doesn't just call attention to the current abuses, but the people that are actually working on ways to address climate change with clean energy technologies, And like, figure out you know new forms of publishing or medicine or you know automotive technology or just an an infinite list of like where do i go when i want that flavor anyway it's not that i have like an antagonism toward the kind of journalism that holds power to account quite the opposite Mm -hmm. it's just that i i like i didn't want to see like the knee-jerk pessimism of some kind of superficial coverage does bother me. And I wanted to offer a, a counter flavor to some of yeah.
1: uh, that. I think, I, I love that, by the way. And of course, I think sometimes we feel a bit more strongly because we are sort of the, we kind of you know for the people building these things. But journalism is one part, but I think the other part is just culture. When we met, you mentioned back Black Mirror, which is an amazing show, huge fan of what they do, at least the early seasons. And, but I think the underlying theme behind Black Mirror is, the world was perfect. And then this piece of technology showed up and, and ruined thi- it, and things yeah. went to shit. And I also want to tie this to something else. I, one of my, when we spoke the first time, you use a line from this Netflix special, which everybody saw, which is, you, you say the world is going to, a- and I say it already has. There seems to be a meme that humanity has peaked and it's all downhill from here. Maybe it's for all of us, maybe for a younger generation. Why do you think that? Do you think that's a real phenomenon?
2: It's definitely recommended to me a lot on TikTok, which means that I watch it a lot. So I'm not saying it's a general phenomenon, but there is a fierce strain of of pessimism, of this idea. Like the, the quote that you're you're mentioning is from Bo Burnham's special, where he says, the line is, is like, you say the ocean's rising like I give a shit. You say the world is ending, honey, it already did. And like that line was taken and- Yes, there's a kind of commentary. There's a kind of like Gen Z like nihilism happening here, but like also it's a it was used quite earnestly by a lot of people that like it was expressing an idea that they genuinely had about their their future, and that really bothered me. Like I, I do make a lot of of. Stories about different topics. And I don't just cover technology. One of the topics that I covered was my own personal questioning of whether or not I wanted to have kids. And a huge number of comments, not the majority of comments, but a large enough number to, for me to really notice of comments on TikTok and on YouTube were, Oh, I don't want to have kids. The world is going to be so much worse in 20 years. And I was like, Whoa. Okay. Like, let's, is there anything that I can offer as a journalist? That would help you deal with that feeling in a more productive way, that would help you like find areas of work that you could participate in. Like I have no idea what the world would be like in 20 years, but there's a lot of very good evidence that we can yeah. make it better, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I began to feel like I had some kind of responsibility here as a person who makes content for a lot of people to to offer something of a slightly different of, of a slightly different kind. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I, I think it's I think it's important to try to do that basically
1: okay so i want to get into this. so i, I think the, about maybe i think i don't forget how many months ago you put out your why i left walks video talk us about the, the story and the build up to that like how do you decide to be like hey i'm going to leave you know what is obviously a very interesting role i'm going to go all in i'm going to kind of make a bet on yourself in something which you hadn't done before how did it come about and talk to us about the creation of that video
2: yeah i i really felt pulled to make this show. Like, I think that sometimes you get an idea and it's like in the back of your head, yeah, here I am, like trying to go through a bunch of taglines for the show. And instead of just including including one tagline, I just include them all because I just can't. It's, it's, you know, very YouTube and TikTok-y to just like show your whole process. But I felt that I really wanted to make this thing for all of the reasons that we've already talked about. And so the next question is like, how do I make this thing that I want to exist in the world? Here's our, our wonderful title treatment. So I, I walk through the fact that I have been at Vox for five years, the, the amazing work that I'm proud to have been a part of there, and the kind of ethos that I adopted from Vox. I, I, I learned everything I know about being a video producer by working at Vox and, and taking my classes on the side. And I, I thought about the way that the show would look in multiple different versions of it. And at the end of the day, I really wanted it to be something that felt... I really wanted three things. Mm -hmm. I wanted the chance to really genuinely experiment. Like, balls to the wall. Like, something could be 20 minutes long. It could be two minutes long. Mm -hmm. I could cover any topic I wanted. I could really just experiment with the style. Mm -hmm. Some of which I've done and some of which I, I hope is coming. Thing number two is... I really wanted to, just on, on the format, not even on the the topic that we're looking at right now, I, of course, I wanted to make the show and I wanted to offer this perspective to people. But I also really wanted to do it in a way where I could have a direct relationship with an audience. I had started to build that relationship on TikTok already. I probably had like eight hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand.
1: 800,000 followers. That's a good mic drop moment right there. I just 800,000. <laughs> a teensy, beansy, small number right there.
2: I had been making a lot of content on TikTok and it it felt like I was developing a relationship with an audience that that I felt was really special. Like to to get back to this sort of creative confidence conversation, I had built up the the confidence to know that I could write good videos and that people would like them. But I was always publishing them from Vox. And then with TikTok, I started to have the the like realization, I wouldn't have phrased it this way if you'd asked me at the time, but I started to have the realization that like, People would watch the work that I made kind of because it had value for them, not just because it came from Vox and because I was like annoyed to be a person that like got to make videos for Vox. And that was a little bit of a switch for me. It was like level one was like I could be paid to be creative. Level two was like my work has value no matter whether or not it's attached to another brand.
1: I have a theory as to why this happened. And let me kind of you know use one of my favorite pro wrestling terms. I'm obviously a huge fan of WWE and pro wrestling. So pro wrestling has, by well, the word for just everything, but one of the best words they have is when someone gets over. And what the word over means is you have now built a magical, hard to describe connection with an audience. You may be a good person or a bad person, but who when you are, they now feel like they know you and they want to see more from you, and it's hard, right? Only really, very few people do it, and it's hard to reconstruct it. But when it happens, it's kind of magical, and and I think somewhere along your TikTok journey, you know, and I remember describing, you know, you this way to one of our friends, is that you got over uh, and another Pro Wrestling friend, right? And I think this kind of ties into something very interesting because if you look at your TikTok content, YouTube content, I can see the the journey from someone who is behind the camera production. To someone who's kind of a, a nameless, faceless voice. To now someone who, some of the just are quite personal. Like the one about the artificial womb is quite personal. The one about dogs' lives is quite, you know, person in a very different direction. And you're not kind of putting more of yourself in Clio, the person out there. How is that, because it's something we think about a lot, you know. In some ways, I think, you know, our, I think our, this shows at best the audience builds some sort of a, Bond Connection with, us. with they, us. They feel like yeah. they understand us. And yeah.
0: And we have to trade that off with the guests that come on the show, us making sure that we're able to get them to tell their story because that's really what the show is about, but also not feel like they don't know us at all. Mm-hmm. So we have to like play that. It's it's kind of a trade off that we often have to like decide on, on the. Yeah.
1: Plan. And we think a lot about like how much of our own lives we want out there or kids and stuff. But, you know, I, I love seeing yeah. that journey for you. And how, was it deliberate? How did that happen? How do you think about it?
2: That's that's spot on. That's that's really the third thing that I was after. It was like experimentation, relationship with an audience, and then this third thing where I was like in order for the other things to work and in order for me to feel like I'm really doing the version of this show that I set out to do, I do want it to be personal. Like I don't I was on a panel recently with a bunch of other really interesting people that make content on the internet and a couple of them really are specifically developing just just a, a pure friendship relationship. Like it's parasocial, but it's a it's friendship relationship with their audience.
1: But if you could say the word parasocial means because it's a fantastic word and I use it all the time.
2: Yeah, it's a parasocial relationship, meaning like the the one to many kinds of relationships that we often have on social media. I actually I don't know if the word is meant to be used this way, but in my head, I think about it going the other direction as well. Like, I don't know if it means the opposite, but I do have some kind of relationship to the audience, Mm -hmm. even though I don't see them. So I, I don't know what I would call their relationship to me might be parasocial in my head, I call my relationship to them also parasocial, but there might be a better word for that. But I was talking to these these influencers and creators who make much more personal work than I do. And I was like, oh, what I'm trying to do isn't start with my life and then share my life, which is a, a real skill just in and of itself. You have to find ways to make your life interesting and like they're incredible storytellers that just do that. I follow lots and lots and lots of them. What I do is a slightly different thing where I'm trying to make an explainer about a topic, but mm-hmm. I'm also trying to share enough so that you understand why I care mm-hmm. and and right. sometimes to give it another layer so that you better consider the idea. So for example, that video about artificial wombs was meant to be an explainer about the many different tools that we're now using to like build the building blocks that might one day string together to actually be artificial technology, but to do it in a way that people wouldn't be like, Oh my God, the matrix, I hate this. But instead be like, I'm talking to the guy who is doing the research that is, you know, beginning to help mice survive for longer in an artificial environment. And then I'm mentioning the research that is helping premature babies survive for earlier and earlier when they, when they come out of the womb and like all of that And so what you're seeing right now is a Twitter fight that happened about this same topic. And I really didn't want that that feeling
0: of like Yeah, I mean I saw that in the video. You started out with Elon Musk's tweet on, you know, people having more kids. And then I think Sahil like replies to that and Vitalik replies to that later. Sahil's basically like, Yeah, it's a technology problem, artificial wombs, and then like everyone, there's just like Oh, these tech people, they have no idea. You know, not everything can be <laughs> yeah. solved with technology. This is a humanities problem kind of thing. And it's just like like you called out in the video, it's really polarizing.
1: Yeah. Right? Totally. yeah I think one, one thing to love about that video, which I think might be your most watched video on your channel. though I think the F1 is probably gonna overtake it at some point. In time, is the original Twitter fight, you know, was very sort of I would say cold and intellectual and abstract and just a bunch of dudes, to be honest. And, you know, it's sort of this very, like, for humanity to survive, we need blah, blah, blah. And I think the, th- the thing I love about your video is it sort of flipped it and made it from abstract to very intimate and personal. Personal. Um, yeah. And I don't know what you like, whoa, this is actually a lot more personal than, you know, I mean, I-, I wouldn't be able to do the video for obvious reasons, but, you know, it's it's very out there. So did you think about what's kind of a deliberate choice? I'm going to really you know, talk about your own story and you have some opinions, which I'm sure some people would disagree with. Like, what is the process behind you coming up with that video?
2: It was, it was very, it was deliberate for exactly that reason. I was like, how can I, by putting myself into this video, defang the conversation slightly so that people will just have a better opportunity to make their own decision about what they think. So like when you sort of present someone with a tweet that's like, for the sake of humanity, we have to do this. They're like, no, we don't. And, and that's a very antagonistic relationship. Whereas like if you have a 20 minute long video where a woman is talking about her own sort of feelings about pregnancy and kids and like looking into some research. First of all, that's all the video was meant to be. I'll, I'll get to my surgery in a second. But like I didn't know that I was gonna have surgery when I started this video. So yeah. like it it was meant to be kind of a personal journey where I'm just a proxy for the audience looking into this subject, but I'm also sharing like I haven't had kids yet. And like, I think it's kind of magical that my body can do that, but also like totally terrifying. I'll be honest. Like all of those feelings came up for me. And so I just sort of shared them. And, and I think that people are less likely to be like, Oh, you're bad for suggesting this idea. If you, if you allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to say, here's why I was interested in this idea. I don't, I feel kind of mixed about it, but like, here's my feeling. They're not going to tell me I'm, they might feel differently than I do, but they, I don't, I don't think they're likely given the sort of vulnerability that I show in this video, like a nice person. There are definitely people that, you know, will hate it on the internet, but like
1: it is the internet.
2: Yeah. I was was very, very happy with how people responded because they, they, they said, Oh, I feel differently about that. Not like, yeah. oh, oh, this is a terrible, terrible I thing. Think, yeah,
0: I think you're totally right. And I think to what Sriram had said, it went from this conversation about population and increasing the number of people on the planet through different means, through technology to, hey, here is the thing that I'm running into. This is a choice that I have to make. And yeah. it made it very, it made it less about statistics and more about you as an example, And I think that made people resonate with you, whether they agreed with you or not. They felt like, okay, yeah, I get it. Like, this is where she's coming from, kind of thing. And I think that was really powerful with that video. Outside of that video, how do you build trust with your audience? And, you know, the F1 video, you know, your videos on dog's life, like any of those, like for you to go from where you started to where you are now, I think it takes a lot of like building trust with the audience. And do you approach, like, is there like a playbook that you approach? How do you go about it?
2: I think about what I would want from a person who I'm getting this kind of content from. Like, I do share some elements of my life. Like, if someone were to follow me on Instagram, they would know what my dog looks like, for example. But I don't require, like, answers to every question from an educator. I just Mm. expect honesty and at a feeling that like, I know where they're coming from in a video. And this is slightly at odds with the way that I was, I mean, I was never formally trained as a journalist, but like the the sort of general premise that journalists are not supposed to put themselves in the story. Like I still have that in the back of my head right. and I, I try not to make it like about me. It's more that I try to make myself a proxy for the audience. And I ask yeah. the questions that they would ask and I share the parts of my journey that are relevant to understanding that topic. And I think that
0: builds trust. Like, I- you ever get anyone being like, what makes you an expert in F1? Or oh,
2: totally. What? And I just say that I'm not.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll literally be like, in one of my early videos, I actually love experimenting with this as an independent journalist, as opposed to like, there was a lot, frankly, more pressure when I was at a media company to be like, I'm speaking for the media company. Yeah. I felt a lot more anxiety about being wrong. Whereas like, I'm doing the same amount of research and prep now. Like my, I feel the same way about the quality of my work. But now if someone like points out a way in which I've made a mistake in my video, like this hasn't happened yet, but I would just pin the comments and I would say, thank you. Like it really, I, I don't feel that that would be, embarrassing in some way. I would nice. just be like, thank you for contributing to this collective effort that I'm trying to make to like oh, get to the bottom great. of the topic, you know? And and I think like on some of my videos, because I don't feel that anxiety anymore, I don't feel the need to like speak with capital E explainer voice. I just say what I think is true because of yeah. why I think it's true. And sometimes I will say, in one of my very first videos about fracking, I remember it was just such a controversial topic. And I actually mm-hmm. was, just to be clear, I'm not like pro fracking. I am very excited about the applications of some of that tech that was developed for oil and natural gas that are now being used in geothermal. I think that's yeah. really cool. And so I was explaining that transition. And as I was talking about some of the concerns with fracking, I just realized that like, I'm spending a month, maybe six weeks researching this. I'm going to get to like a lot of detail, but there are people that are just going to know more than me. And so I said, if you are an expert in this, I think this is the answer based on this report that I'm reading. But if you have done research on this topic, please let me know. I would love to. Yeah, hear it. that's great. And I would never have put that in a video before, but I really like that. I really want to get that feeling in the show of like, I here's the best I can do. Here's the best I've learned. And here's how I learned it. And I think if you show the work and you say, I spent a month researching this, like this is why I think what I think.
1: I actually have a theory which I think one of the reasons your your content really works uh, on this front. And actually part of the reason why some, you know, people, a bunch of people actually, at least in the tech industry, are often grumpy at, you know, let's say just a lot of mainstream media, is they do speak in the capital E voice where your content grounds it in the personal. It kind of comes from a perspective of, look, I'm just a somewhat informed outsider doing my research and you interview it with your personal story. You're not trying to say, hey, this is the voice of God. This is all the news fit to print. And this is be the record forever and ever. And I think that's kind of what makes some of your content like really powerful. Okay. I want to talk about the F1 video for just a sec. So F1, we're a huge fan. I I grew up watching F1 and, you know, we've been watching like Drive to Survive last few seasons. Talk to us about the process, right? Because huge topic, lots of content already out there, lots of ways to slice and dice it. Walk us through from from the time you were like, hey, I should do a video on F1 all the way to going to the Miami Grand Prix and, you know, this fantastic video which everybody should absolutely check out.
2: Thank you. This video is totally the result of my personal obsession. I love F1. I I think that it's just such a fascinating like it's meaty sport with so many different angles and so many ways in which people can get obsessed with it. My particular way is not generally like the history of the teams or the drivers themselves, although I totally have my favorites. Hello. Who's, who's
1: your favorite? Who do you cheer for? Come on. We want to get Hamilton
0: and Daniel Ricardo are my are my Sorry.
1: two uh, favorites.
0: <laughs> I'm a big Hamilton fan. He's and huge. he yeah. will be back. You know nah.
1: yeah, too much bark by saying <laughs> Ricardo, I mean I love the guy. He's such a great personality, but it doesn't look so good for him at the moment. I really hope he makes it.
2: I know. I I, I love the drivers that I love and admire. I love them because I admire them a lot as, as yeah. people. Like as I, I think beings. that yeah. they are really exceptional human beings based on, again, the parasocial relationship that I have with them. I don't know either of them personally. But the reason why I'm obsessed with F1 is... Is the competition of the car technology, and frankly, actually, the driver's relationship to the car. Like if you listen mm-hmm. to him with Hamilton talk about how the car works, it's it's fascinating. Like his mm-hmm. relationship to like his the way that he with works Bono, out his body right? to like, like participate it, the, the, in the car awesome. So I I got really interested because I'm someone who loves technology in the element of F1 that is like a group project science competition is how I think about it. (laughs) And like, once you see this sport that way, it's just so crazy that like these hundreds of millions of dollar budgets for these teams Mm -hmm. end up being spent on like how to make the most safe gripped like fast car possible. And I just love that challenge. And I love that it's like hundreds and hundreds of engineers doing a sport. So Mm -hmm. I I got obsessed with F1 is the is the impetus for this video. And then all of the different pieces begin to come together and they're always the visuals. So visual number one is I went to the race in Miami. I was just a spectator. Mm -hmm. Like if you notice the footage that I have at the race is on my phone because I was not allowed to bring my camera in. But a phone shoots in 4K, like it was fun. Yeah, yeah. So one element of the visual is I went to Miami, here's what it feels like. So that's, there's no explanatory content there. It's just the visuals of like, Give you a feel of of what F one is like when you're there. It's very. exciting. It's
1: really it. powerful because it shows your love and excitement. You know, I think that's a shot yeah, of you in one of the one of the garages, and you just kind of feel so giddy. Like any of us would be like, <laughs> "Oh my gosh!" You know, I think it was maybe Aston. So I think it really grounds it in the personal, which I, I just love. It you're a fan, it really comes across.
2: Thank you. So there's there's that visual element. Then the next vi- visual element that I knew we needed was I wanted to explain why F1 technology was so important, not just yeah. so interesting and cool, but what F1 was doing that was helpful to other technological elements. And I, right. I focused on other cars, but there are actually, there's medical data science, there's all kinds of other applications of F1 technology. And basically, I wanted to explain how an F1 car worked and how that technology was kind of a flywheel. They, they, they took the best of car technology and then they, they improved it and pushed it and then they fed it back into the rest of the kind of car ecosystem and then they do it mm-hmm. over and over. Mm-hmm. So I knew that we needed a really cool visual of an F1 car and I hadn't done three-dimensional animation before. And mm-hmm. so I knew before I made the video, I was like, this, there's got to be 3D animations to explain how these cars work and what parts are really exciting about them. So that, then the next one is I was going to do some like direct to camera stuff in this episode, but I didn't want it to just be me sitting there and talking to you. Mm-hmm. So I, I bought a Lego kit to, mm-hmm.
1: to make that a so car. Fun. I, have and- a, I have a question on that because i watched that. During the holidays, Artie and I tried to do one of these Lego kits with the Harry Well, one. Well,
0: no, the Home Alone one. The Home Alone one. one. And yeah. we
1: spent like two days and we built like one truck from the whole homeland.
0: did you actually
1: finish constructing the car very quick? That was like, she must be really, really good at I,
2: Lego. I finished it. Well, so I actually, secret, I, I made the cars. I made both cars twice. So there are actually two cars. One is an F1 car and the other, which worked out perfectly. I couldn't believe it when I found this, this Lego kit. It's actually an F1 car and a Mercedes road car. Mm-hmm. So okay. I built both cars and my point was like, here's the F1 car, here's the road car. like, And there are little animation overlays that are like, what from this car goes into this car was kind of the vibe. But I actually, I recorded an entire building sequence from a top-down camera that unfortunately was like a little bit too set too bright, so it didn't look as good as I wanted it to. But I I filmed the whole thing just of my hands and the table making the cars. I ended up like not even using the shot at all. And then I filmed one where I was doing the lines that I had written in the script, but I was also building the car at the same time. And so there's actually like two full hours between some of the lines that I said in this video because I had to like speed up and make the car. In between. <laughs> 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 Luckily, I didn't record. I didn't waste the footage. I didn't record for that long. But I like, I'll like turn it off and then make the car and then turn it back on again.
1: You know, one of the things that I love the videos. When I saw the video, I was really excited. But I was, I kind of interviewed like, I know F one. Like, I've grown up with this. I know what the sport is about. Yeah, but. You know, there's some amazing bits of journalism yep. in in it. You know, you actually go and it, this whole interview is gonna be a hype video for the F1 video, but you go and pull out the annual reports of some of the F1 teams. Like the one, how
0: much they spending. How much they
1: spend? There's one signed yeah. by Toto himself right there, and that's actually pretty cool. Like I was like, well, I, because I I thought I knew F1, but I had never seen these documents before. That was very cool.
2: Those documents were hard to find. I actually tweeted at one point, my audience helped with it. I tweeted, like I had found four or five of them, but there were just a bunch more. I was like, I'm not, I would be happy. I only ended up finding eight out of 10, but I was like, I would be happy with like eight, seven, eight, nine would be fine. But like five, five is not enough. And so I tweeted and I was like, where do, you know, the Italian teams publish their, like where, there are a bunch of other documents. Where where can I find them? And people, people submitted That's That's so um, cool. a bunch of F1. <laughs> you numbers. know,
0: I think for me, the thing I love most about this video and like a bunch of other videos that you put together is it's so nerdy. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> such nerdy fun because yeah. you can kind of go into this rabbit hole of like everything from like budgets, what they're spending, new regulations, all that stuff. You can get into cars and car technology. You can get into what is it like being there at the Grand Prix, at the crowd reaction and all of that stuff. You can get into like, you know, pace of the cars, who's winning, who isn't, the celebration and like, you know, the celebrity nature of the whole thing. It's like such a spectacle. And there's just so many different vectors to go nerd out on. And I I just love that like you just took every single aspect of it and just went like super deep. (laughs) I saw the YouTube comments. The first comment was this guy who's like, I'd like to think I'm a crazy F1 expert, but I thought this video was like amazing. Oh this is so great. And that's like got the most likes. And the second guy is like, I'd been on the fence getting that Lego kit, but now I'm going to go get it. <laughs> actually, I'm, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm, actually, I should probably get it. Too. It's
0: <laughs> so fun because no, you're, like, no it's like the nerds of the world uniting to watch this thing together and you're like putting yeah. it together. It's so fun that's why I love the sport too, right? Yeah, like there's yeah. a
2: line in there that I, it really crystallized it for me when I like figured out this line, I was like, F1 seems like the sport of daredevils, but actually it's the sport of nerds. Oh, and no. Like that's it. Like that's the, that's the feeling that I have about F1. And you can tell, I mean, to get back to what we were talking about, about the sort of optimism and, and technology approach, like I'm clearly focusing on the technology because that's the thing that I'm obsessed with and because it's the thing that fits in my show. Like yeah. there's a spirit of optimism about what F1 can bring to the world that yes. I think is like just unabashedly thrilled. Like hap- I'm just Being excited. Yeah. But I, I do think that there's, there's a tone thing here of just like happiness and optimism and, and to your point, just nerding out that is even when I'm not covering something like the F1 video, I think does make the case that F1 is helping push forward the future. Like there's, there's a whole, the whole conclusion is about that, but it's not like I have videos coming up that are about much more kind of future looking, like, tech approaches to things that might help slow climate change and might, you know, all kinds of technologies that might fit better into the, the topic that I've set out of huge, if true. But I also think there's an element of like explaining the underlying technological concepts of basically anything Mm -hmm. in just a way that is sufficiently appreciative of the awesome engineering behind that work. And like how cool it is that we figured yeah. out how to do that like there's yeah. an element of just i think yeah like happiness yeah
0: and, I, I totally and, get that love it
2: i think no, sorry. Go.
1: you know I, I think you know on f1 one thing i like tell people is you know unlike a lot of other racing sports the teams don't share most of the teams don't share technology they're kind of basically given the rule book and it's crazy that at the end of a year of development they build these cars which go within like <laughs> 10,000th of a second with same to each other without actually ever collaborating, right? They basically, everyone's pushing engineering and science to the limit. Yeah. And that's why they get I
0: wanted to ask you about how you come up with concepts for explainers that you do. Is it as simple as like, oh, I'm interested in this. I'm going to go like spend a month researching and coming up with the material. Or is it like, do you get pitched on? Do you have people telling you you should do this? This is what is most, or do you look at like timely topics? Are there topics where you're like, you do a month or whatever amount of time of research and you're like, I don't think this is worth it to do an explainer? Like, how does the whole behind the scenes process of picking a topic or a concept work for you?
2: There are kind of two avenues. The first is sometimes things just appear in the world and I'm like, that's uh, that's a huge if true video. You know, like I have a video coming up and it's just because I was at a dinner party and this girl next to me started talking about this article that she'd read. And I was like, oh my, like I used, to, I, I, can't, I can't, I don't right. want to spoil it. But like, it, it was just immediate. I was like, I heard about this topic for the very first time. And I was like, I'm going to totally spend a month digging into that. The other version. And, and, and so when I, in that first category, the way that I absorb these topics, because they very rarely just hit when I happen to be looking for another topic is I have a notes app, Captio, that basically is the Mm -hmm. fewest number of clicks to to get to a note. And anytime I I see something in the world that I think would be a good video, I write it down in Captio, send it to myself, and it goes into a spreadsheet. And so I have this like infinite list of stuff that I've encountered in the world that that I think might make a good video. And so I, I never have a time when I'm like, totally... You never want the terror of the blank page is something <laughs> yeah. you really want to avoid. So I never have that. I like always have this spreadsheet. And the other version of it is I know that there's a topic over here that I that I think is important to explain about the world and I hear a lot of questions about it, but I'm not sure what my angle is on it and I I don't really understand it. And so I kind of circle a general topic like I haven't made this video yet, but like self-driving cars. And then I would spend at least a couple days digging into sort of reading a book and and looking around on the internet and reading a lot of articles. And I would come up with the key visuals first. It's like, okay, here's a really good diagram that helps me understand what the heck is going on in this conversation about self-driving cars. And, And now I can write a script that that focuses on that diagram. Cause I've like circled the topic. And then I did some research to find the specific video that I'm going to make. And now I'm going to make it. So the, those are, those are the two ways that I find topics. Both of them require, before I start writing, they require an outline that has the visuals like all, all lined up, not perfectly, but I have to know Typically, I have to know at least one key visual that I'll come back to over and over again. So whether that's a chart or in the F1 video, here's some examples. In the F1 video, it's the three dimensional F1 car animation. There are also lots of other charts and visuals in that piece, but that's the key one that I keep coming back to. In the very first one that I did on geothermal, it's a cross section of the earth. And I explain how fracking worked traditionally. And then I move over a little bit and explain how geothermal works so that you can see sort of a comparison Mm -hmm. of the technologies that are being used for each. In the fertility artificial wombs episode, it's that timeline of the different technologies. And so I explain like, here's where the research from this guy that I was interviewing is where he's helping mice survive for longer at the beginning of a pregnancy. And then, you know, here's all of the work that we would have to do in between here's IVF right at the very beginning. And here's, all of the work that's being done to help premature babies survive. So it's kind of a timeline of pregnancy mm-hmm. of many different animals and lining up the research to basically say, we have a bunch of pieces, but we don't have the whole timeline yet. That's mm-hmm. the, when I come back to it over and over again, as I'm describing new research.
1: Yeah. And, and the dogs want, I love the graph and mm-hmm. you, you all yes. turn up, turn the graph upside down. Which exactly. I was, I was, I was that's the like, visual
2: like, on that piece. Um, it's a thing you should remember.
1: I want to kind of get to a different part of your videos because, you know, it's obvious how much work you're kind of put into the construction, you know, the architecture of these videos. But there's another part, which is, you know, you are, you know, like dynamic, captivating to watch on screen. You. And, you know, and I'm sure some of it is natural. Some of it's learned. Also, when I remember watching the TikTok and I, I think there's sort of a somewhat unproduced vibe, you know, <laughs> I love the look with all the, you know, the the, uh, the wired headphones and so on. So if you had to teach the viewers of the show to how to come across on camera and subtracting someone of this natural skill, talent, ability to get themselves over in WWE terms, like what would be your tips?
2: I have two. The first is that I began to really treat the camera differently when I didn't just, everyone says like pretend the camera is a friend and that's fine. Like pretend that you're friends with the camera, like you're talking to someone who, who you know. Don't do that. Literally mm-hmm. imagine one single person who is behind the camera, like you're FaceTiming just that one single person. And it changes for me sometimes, but like sometimes I'm talking to my friend, Alexa. Sometimes it's Serena. Sometimes it's my husband. Sometimes it's Katie. Like I, I actually, I don't even know if they know that I do this. I've pro- probably told some of them. But somebody's,
1: I like, somebody's like, I feel as if somebody's talking to me in the universe. I can't explain why. I just feel this feeling.
2: This specific. And so I'll be like, this video, I'm talking to this person. And I actually imagine that it's them. And I'll say the line enough times that it doesn't. And I'm like, how would I actually say this to Serena? Like, I wouldn't use a word like that. I would just say blah, 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 blah. And like, that's often the, oh, that's the line funny. that I'll use. So number one, pick a friend. And then imagine that you're talking to that specific person. And number two is just do it a shit ton. And that's not <laughs> Like I, so I used to be very, I still get a like delay being on camera because like I don't like putting on makeup and then I have to like set it up and it's like a slight, I do, I do still procrastinate on it, but I don't, I'm no longer nervous in front of it. And the reason for that is that I was, I was the sole host of a show called Answered, which was Vox's daily show from like 2020. To 20, I think it was one year, it was in it was in 2020. And so I did like 140 interviews and like a, like a 140 like direct to camera takes, like every single day. Wow, it's mm-hmm. oh, crazy. And if you watch me at the beginning, I'm way more stiff. And if you watch me at the end, I'm just exhausted and I'm like, get what you can get, like <laughs> here it is, and it's so much better. It's yeah. so much better because I was way less worried about yeah. exactly how. Right. It was. Yeah,
1: I, I think it was there's this is great story about Stanley Kubrick. You know, who was famously a perfectionist, but also a very difficult director to work with. And I remember, and you know, I remember studying the whole saga of you know him making *Ice White Shut, which was this yeah, yeah, which was this two-year shoot with like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, and might have destroyed their marriage. And but part of his theory and was that he did so many takes. And he exhausted the actors so much that the theory and this may have been a very made him a very bad boss to work for is that at the end you forget the pretense of being an actor and you're just kind of almost in it you're just doing it you're doing the scene because you're living in it you're so because tired. you're so tired you're not thinking you're not overthinking yourself and I think there is something that hopefully you know you're not you know you're not doing a two-year version of you know any video but there is something similar where you kind of like not psyching yourself out. Like some of our best moments on the show are when we're just kind of in it. The worst moments are when we're kind of thinking about how does this look and there's a technical issue and blah, blah, blah. And that's my harder. Uh, Yeah,
2: I think some people on TikTok, sorry, some people on TikTok I think are even better at this. Like the the way that people are just so totally natural and kind of like live on that app, I find very... Not my speed in the sense of like, I don't think I could actually live my life that way, but very inspirational in their tone of voice, in their like casualness with their audience, because I think it's just so compelling to watch. So I try and I actually do think I've learned, I've learned a bit since I, I was citing The Daily Show. But since then is really when I started to be on TikTok and and watch other TikTok creators. And I, I think that there's another layer of that of just like that level of intimacy and casualness that i yeah, I, think I was
1: going to go that next because I want to talk about YouTube versus TikTok, because I think We might have talked about this before, but when you're on TikTok, you know, there is something about it not being perfectly produced and it's seeming like, hey, I'm just kind of doing this. I'm out in the street and I feel like talking to you about this. So how do you approach your TikTok video content? Because it does have a different flavor.
2: So I've I've thought about how to explain this a lot. A lot of people talk about repurposing content like capital C, the, the asset that they made, for YouTube or for TikTok and then taking that content, capital C and putting it somewhere else. So like, how can you get the most leverage and the most audience out of that thing that you made? And I think that makes a lot of sense. There's a a scale where you can publish the same thing on Instagram reels and on shorts and on TikTok and get that kind of leverage out of the work that you've already made. The thing is, though, when you're doing it with like long form YouTube to YouTube Shorts or Instagram Reels or TikTok, like there are different feelings for mm-hmm. each of those communities. And at the cost of being the best that you can be in that community, you're getting leverage out of your content. And that's an okay mm-hmm. trade off to make if you're aware that you're making it. Like there are actually many creators who I know who are recutting clips of their YouTube videos into tiktoks and doing extraordinarily well do i think they they could do marginally better yes but do i think it's worth their time to do marginally better probably not so there's a whole Mm -hmm. trade-off there however there's another way of thinking about publishing on multiple different platforms at the same time which i'm not sure i'm doing this extraordinarily well right now because i'm just really busy trying to start a youtube trying to get my youtube channel to the place that i want it to be so i actually have only posted on tiktok like once in the last week which is low for most TikTokers. But the way that I think about it is, here's the way that I think about repurposing content and posting on multiple channels. You should be repurposing the content lowercase c of the work that you make. Because at least the way that I make journalism is, there's a huge amount, there's like a brick wall of of research and asset finding and you know, music choice and all kinds of other stuff that I have created in this brick wall of, of lowercase, the, the content of my content. And then on top of that wall is like the little pile of bricks. That is the actual edit for the actual YouTube video. And then the actual like smaller clip that goes on Instagram on your, Forever feed, and then the smaller, smaller clips that go on your stories, and then the 30 second version that goes on TikTok or whatever. And you should be leveraging the bottom part, the, the research, the actual work that you did, yeah. the content, yeah. as opposed to being obsessed with repurposing the asset, which may yeah, not be the yeah. best for you. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's so like, great. So like, I will, I
2: don't, again, I don't always, I'm trying to like, Build up enough of a production schedule that I can actually do this really well. But the goal would be for me to be for every YouTube script, writing also five to 10, 30. If, if my YouTube scripts are generally five to 20 minutes, I should be writing five to 10, 30 second TikTok scripts. Hmm. And then re-recording just on my phone, the hmm. lines for the TikToks so that the appearance is that I'm just like doing what TikTok is for. I'm just like yeah. a friend versus on YouTube. The expectation is that I have like a real
1: yep. sit
2: down thing yeah. going on. Yeah. And I'll do that there.
0: Yeah. And then but the foundational the content assets. is the same. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then I'll take the same assets and put them on top of both like talking head versions of me. Oh. So it's crazy. the same story but it's told in a way that is better for
0: each each platform, platform. yeah that's so great that's uh, super nuanced that's, and hard,
2: that's hard i gotta figure out how to do it so i'm I, like I, a I, little bit preaching what i'm not practicing I'm gonna, right I'm now gonna, like,
1: i'm gonna record this with my phone <laughs> <and> <laughs> yeah then.
2: exactly see this is a good behind the scenes tiktok there we go it's gonna go viral
1: one last thing you know i'm such a fan of you know what you're doing where does this all go from here for you
2: you know, I a friend of mine asked me what I wanted to do in, in five years at dinner the other night. And I realized that if she had asked me a year before, I would have described all of the, you know, different upcoming things that I'm excited about and the other, you know, ways in which I'm going to change what I'm doing now to be happier or to be more creatively fulfilled or to be doing... And the amazing place that i just feel so lucky to be in right now is that i can look at you and i can say i'm going to do this thing like i've finally found the thing that i i just want to do more more of this bigger, more professional higher volume maybe if i can afford it version of of this thing that i've discovered and i think we we overrate what we can accomplish in one year and underrate what we can accomplish mm-hmm five and i'm basically excited like this could change i'm sure that there are many evolutions of being an independent creator that i have not yet encountered but for right now i just i just want to do this and actually the exercise is in saying no to other things so that i can i can just do this thing yeah wow
1: Uh, oh my goodness i just want to say you know uh, I'm, we are such big fans of what you're doing. We wish you all the success, and I know you're going oh, to just you. kill it. You uh, too. You know, I think this, you know, this well, not only really, just kind of in a nerdy way or as kind of fellow creators are we, you know, so excited to see your journey. But I just think what you're doing needs to exist for the world. We need more optimistic content of all kinds of flavors. You know, you mentioned the 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 dinner option. You know, I don't, uh, and you're one of the options on the menu. I think what we're doing is kind of not the same, but close on the menu to where you are right? It's like the
2: totally, yeah, I
1: agree. Yeah. Same,
0: same yeah. Kind yeah, of the, food.
1: it's the fun, optimistic Tuesday. meals you have, with, and if you're on somewhere on your side, and- I mean,
0: I, I love so for me overall, I love how much thought you're putting into this. Like, it clearly shows that you know, creating is your passion. I love how nerdy it is. I've said this before, <laughs> but I also love how authentic you are as a person, where this is you, this is like all the things, all the bells and whistles, and the way you think about content on different platforms and who your audience is and how do you like do behind the scenes. And Sherm and I today were talking about how you incorporate things like sounds really well into your videos. And, you know, these like the little details and what you do, it clearly shows like how passionate and authentic you are. And we love that. Like, this is truly what our show is about, which is about like getting creators, getting builders to talk about the things that they're so passionate about and and you know it's such a it's a, such a great honor to like have you on the show because you're clearly like you just embody that whole yeah. value so well yeah.
2: thank you i really appreciate that i will also say that one of the most exciting and most creatively fulfilling things that has happened for me over the course of the last couple months is being able to form relationships with and work closely with other people who do similar things and other make things. similar work, like the two of you, like there's, there's a whole team of people on different people on different episodes who are working with me on Huge If True, people who do their work just so much better than I do. Like the designer who made Huge If True look the way that it looks, her name's mm-hmm. Whitney Theus. She just is extraordinarily good at like simplifying complicated things and making them look beautiful in a way that also it was important to me that they not feel like every other sci-fi show feels where it's like mm-hmm. drawn, you know, like the yeah. future is the inside of a spaceship. Yeah. Instead, she chose all of these kind of solar punk colors with like greens and browns that make yeah. it just feel much more like to me, it, it reads as optimistic. Anyway, um, so it's just been such a total joy to get to talk to people like yourself, get to work with people like the folks who are helping me make huge of true get to I've had a bunch of conversations with other creators in ways that i have never had before because everyone's just really i think once you kind of put yourself out there people are really supportive it's it's just I mean, been nice. such a great adventure
1: well, you're just a genius level creator and what you're doing is so important thank you that's so so much it's such a blast like, even there's so many different places I know, you know on totally <laughs> you know, videos uh tiktok this is such a fun you should come do this again but thank you so, so much Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you everyone for joining us. Until next time, this is a good time show. Have fun. Stay safe. Thank you. Bye bye.